We've been going through the book of Acts and we're looking at particularly this theme that the book of Acts is the continuing work of Jesus Christ in his church. And that's how Luke actually introduces this half of his writings. And this is literally just Luke part two. We could have called it that and it would have been accurate. Uh, As we go through this book, we see the church encounter a lot of ups and downs. It's a roller coaster ride. And if we ever get the impression that everything that happened in the early church, uh, in the first century church, was always just the way it ought to be, then we're not reading our Bibles and we're not reading uh, some, what good night. I studied First Corinthians the last uh, several weeks a lot to finish up a course. And if you've ever read First Corinthians, you know that the early church uh, had things that the early church didn't even have to deal with. And if they're saved, I think First Corinthians may be in the Bible just to show Christians in all time just how messed up His people can be. And God still saves by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. I really believe that. And when we look at the book of Acts, we see a lot of good examples to follow. Some of those examples are examples we look at and say, we ought to do that. Some of those examples are things that say, well, that's how they handled that within their freedom. And we do need to kind of learn to to know the difference between those two. In our fellowship, we kind of have a history of if they did it, we must. That's not actually true. If they did it, we know that that's something that obviously God blessed, unless it was one of those things that Paul later wrote a letter about and said, stop that. And then we know you should you should probably stop that. Uh, But even then, there are things we talked about this Wednesday night. There are things where Paul even writes to the church at Corinth and tells them, stop that. Some of those things he didn't tell everybody else to stop. Some of those things he didn't make everybody else uh, say no to. For example, eating when you come together um, as a church. Generally, in the first century, most churches, uh, their love feast and their worship service uh, were, were an event. Not two separate events. They were an event. They worshipped around tables. They did this. They ate together, sang together, prayed together, together ate the Lord's Supper together, together. Now we're going to start singing Gaither songs on Sunday morning. What, what, are we, what are we doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I did finish that coffee, Brian. That's the problem. And Steve, you were worried about yours giving you the jitters. You had more than me. Just wait till what happens by the end of, of all this. But together they worshipped. They celebrated this supper. But they also, you know, ate supper. Corinth, he has to tell, you guys abuse one another in the way you eat your meal. And so he tells them, stop eating it. You are not mature enough to handle even lunch together. That's how bad they were. You're not mature enough to handle lunch together. But Paul never intended that every church everywhere in all time and and for all circumstances till the Lord comes not be able to eat lunch together. That was not the meaning of what he was saying. He told an immature church that there were some things they couldn't handle until they matured, along with the stuff we were talking about Wednesday night. And so that uh, is just the way that, that Scripture actually works. Now, say all of that to say this. We're going to look at an example here in the early church that none of us follow. None of us follow what they did at the beginning, ever. We just don't do it. That We, the early church of Christ in early Texas, we don't do this. Uh, churches of Christ, I've never known one who did this. First of all, it would take more than one church to do what they did, more than one congregation to do what they did. And we believe so much in congregational autonomy. I'm sorry, I just threw out churchy preachery words, didn't I? 
Churches deciding what they do for themselves. Each, con- by a con- each congregation decides how it's going to handle things. We believe that that's scriptural. I do too. We believe that that's scriptural and we practice it beyond what we ought to believe. <laughs> There's what God said and what's taught in Scripture. And then we take it to what I would call hyper-autonomy. Hyper-autonomy is that we, like a rebellious 13-year-old who's just been told to take the back seat in the car instead of the front seat, say, you're not the boss of me, to any other Christian who tries to help us grow in our faith. We do it at an individual level too, don't we? You're not the boss of me. Because we all, while we don't believe in the Pope, we all believe in ourselves being our own Pope. We are hyper-autonomous as congregations and hyper-autonomous as individuals. They were not in the book of Acts. They had autonomy. Churches needed to make different decisions for their congregation, but they did not make those decisions in an isolated sense. They didn't make those decisions as if no other church exists And when they were wrestling with something, they did not simply look to their own opinions. They did not even simply look to their own conclusions as they studied God's Word, as they listened to their prophets, and as they listened uh, to those who brought a message. They consulted their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, beyond their neighborhood, beyond their town, beyond what would be like our states within the Roman Empire. They actually got together as Christians, as the church. When they needed to know what to do, they consulted the Word, they consulted the Spirit, they got the apostles and the elders of the churches, plural, together at Jerusalem and they worked through a problem. Isn't that fascinating? When have you ever seen that done? Never. Never. This happens among some groups within Christendom. That's the broadest sense of the term for me. Whether or not uh, we would consider them brothers or sisters in Christ, everybody who calls himself a Christian. There are groups within those who have a hierarchical pattern of leadership that they come together and then they pass down their decisions. That's not what this was either. Now, a couple of those churches do try to retroactively fit this into their current paradigm, but it's not really what was going on because this wasn't hierarchical either. The people who came together were in mutual submission, like in Ephesians chapter 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That has a lot of application. And they did this. And you don't see the apostles trying to pull rank over the elders. You don't see the elders pulling rank over the apostles. When uh, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, who's just a missionary, speak, they don't pull rank over the missionary, uh, who is Barnabas. They don't do any of that. They listen. They pray, they discern, they make a decision, they issue it back out to the churches because they actually believed that God's will for the church was God's will for the church. Right? We'll get to all of this a little bit more specifically uh, this morning, but first... I want us to read this together. And this morning, if you're a note taker, I apologize. I don't have a lot of things, uh, little little points. I want us to look really closely at the text today. So uh, this is going to be we're we're going to read through this text and just handle things as we go. But some of the men came down from Judea, and this is the English Standard Version. 
from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. I'm going to stop there for a second because look what happens first. There's some people who come from Judea. That's, that's kind of the traditional land of the Jews there, right? That's around Jerusalem and that surrounding area. They come over to where Paul and Barnabas are, which they've been working among the Gentiles. And they come over to them and they say, hey, we know that you're making all of these uh, Gentiles into Christians and you're letting them follow Jesus Christ. You know, we're okay with that, I guess. But we got a problem. You know that according to the law of Moses... You guys are supposed to circumcise all those men. And why aren't you circumcising those men? We had to be circumcised. Well, you and I know, because we've read the end of the story, we know, we know what happens here. They didn't need to be circumcised. And, and let me just say, aren't you glad you weren't the deacon in charge of checking everybody at the door? What a weird job that must have been. But there are worse things than buildings and grounds. That's all I'm saying. But they sit, are sitting there arguing over whether or not these people have been. And it all comes back down to the same thing that many fights are today. That's not the way we've done it. That's not the way we've always done it. Now, I understand there's a little bit more to this than that because for the Jews, that wasn't just tradition. That wasn't just optional. It wasn't just an, an outward expression of an inward faith. This was commanded by God to be done. Period. So serious a command that when they tried to skip it, he got so angry, he was thinking, I think I'm ready to judge this person real time. Yeah, almost lost their life over that. So, very, very important to God. So you understand where they're coming from. They take it seriously. That's not a fault. Taking it seriously is not a fault. However, however, when Jesus died on the cross, when it was finished when He was raised from the grave and when He ascended to the Father, the old law was done away with. Period. And they struggled with that. Just the same way that people now sometimes struggle with the way I've always done it, the way my grandfather taught me, the way my dad taught me, the way my mom taught me. It's hard. It's hard. We talked about this in our Wednesday night class the last couple of weeks. It's so difficult sometimes to separate out those things that are what we've always done, even if it was a previous command in this case, to separate that out from. But what does God want from us now? And then you put ego into this mix. If I had to do it, they got to do it, right? Anyone who's ever been a teenager knows what that's about. If you had a little sibling who seemed to be getting away with murder, what did you do? Well, when I was that age, you sure made me blah, 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 blah. Some of you still say that at 50 and 60 to your parents. You know? I know that's what happens when grandkids come along. Every parent sits back and watches their parents turn into people that they used to talk bad about. You ever notice that? Parents are always going, I can't believe that they let those kids get away with that. And they sure don't let you get away with that. Jimmy, sit down. Jimmy, be quiet. Jimmy this. Jimmy that. There's a lot of Jimmy this. You know? There was a lot of that. And then you watch your mother with your children. Hi, Mom. You watch your mother with your children. Just let them get away. And, and, and in my case, sometimes I've had my mother as a grandmother go, why are you making them do that? Where did you get that from? Now, I'm too smart to tell her where I got that from. You didn't hear that, 
But I'm too smart to tell her where I got that from. But you know where I got that from, right? Y'all get it. That's what we do. Well, they kind of felt this with God. Surely God still wants... I mean, some of these guys are like, surely they still have to do everything we did. And so this act of circumcision became symbolic of more than circumcision. It became symbolic of all kinds of laws that they still felt ought to be kept. Boundaries and laws and all kinds of things. Because... You just weren't, we've had to do all this all this time. I've had to avoid shrimp and bacon. They ought to have to avoid shrimp and bacon. And I've had to avoid this, and I've had to avoid that, and I've had to do this, and I've, they should have to do it too. And it just, it became to them like law. The Gentiles need to get in line. They're coming into our church. We're not coming into theirs. I might come back to that here in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 3. So, They've been causing problems for Paul and Barnabas, chasing them all over the countryside. And and it says, uh, let me go back up to verse 2, there was no small dissension and debate. I bet that was fun. Everybody loves Christian debate, which should be in most most of the formats it actually works out. It should be possible, but most of the time it's an oxymoron. Verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now that's good, right? They heard that all of these Gentiles were coming to Christ and they're happy about that. They just want to make sure that they have to go through all the same hardships that they've had to go through in life. They're going to thought, we're glad for you to join us as long as you join us. Our way, Right? Our way. Don't sit in my pew. Don't sing it differently from the way I sing it. I already talked about that. Don't do all that kind of stuff. None of this Gentile mess. We know how to do church and you guys just need to learn. Okay, that's what they were saying. But they were happy to do it. (laughs) Honestly, aren't people like that really happy to conform people to their will? Usually, yes. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But... But, there's always one of those, right? But, some believers have belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, these are not non-Christian Pharisees. You know, there were a lot of Pharisees who converted to following Christ. Converted is not really the right word, but you know what I mean. They followed Christ, believed in Christ, were our brothers and, and sisters, their wives, our sisters, in Christ. But you know how hard it is to put to death the old man. Jesus had to go to the cross to make that possible. And then we try to resurrect the wrong one, right? They struggled. We struggle. It happens. So some of them who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary. Notice they didn't ask. They didn't say, but isn't it? I mean, some of y'all will at least go, but, but isn't it? You know, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them. Boy, not, not teach even. Order. Order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, Peter said nothing of that on Pentecost. Jesus said nothing of that in His ministry toward the Gentiles. And you're, you're going to find throughout the rest of the New Testament, that ain't so. But that is what they felt. And that is the problem that they're going to deal with. Okay? They are dealing with this issue. How come they don't have to do what we always had to do? And kind of the subset of that is, they're just not getting that the law of Moses has been completed in Jesus Christ, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that we now live by grace through faith. They're just not getting that to sink in. Sometimes we struggle with that as well. We start thinking that it's our to-do lists and our check-offs and, and our perfect obedience or our perfect understanding or our perfect knowledge. And we have none of that anyway, do we? 
No, it's through faith in the perfect Jesus. But they struggled and, and we struggle. So their question ultimately is, why don't they have to do what we had to do? And that question is rooted in something else, ultimately. It's us and them. Okay, so they're struggling with the law, and they're struggling with what really is God requiring now, and how different really is the church from the way we used to live, and, and this whole newness of all this is wearing on them a little bit, and they're struggling. But there's also this mindset. This is a second problem. They still think like there are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's still us and them. And when we worship together, there's the way that, that I want to worship and there's a way that they want to worship. And, and so there's, there's traditional worship service and contemporary. Oh, that sounds rather modern, doesn't it? There's traditional and contemporary. And God forbid somebody who wants to be traditional and contemporary actually tolerate their brother or sister and, and blend that together. God forbid, right? No. Quite the opposite, actually. They struggle because they don't understand the oneness of the body of Christ. They don't understand what unity really is. Unity is not you come in and do things the way I have always done them. Now, I want that to sink in real good because some of you are longtime Church of Christ people and you know as well as I do that that's actually the way we do unity. When you, you didn't know we were all Democrats, that's the way they do unity. Oh, did I go there? Shame on me. Anyway, it was, a, it was a kind-hearted joke. If you're watching this, don't be flaming me on the Internet. The, I'm actually flaming myself here. In this way, in the Church of Christ, that is what we've often done. You will be my brother when. I will recognize you when. Oh, you were baptized into Christ? You were baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes, but what was the name of the person who did it and were they or were they not in the right building? Were they at the right address? Were they a male? Were they a female? How old were they? You know, where was it done? We've even argued over was the water living water or dead water? Did you know that? We've had church splits. Boy, there's just words today I can't say. Church splits over such things as can you even use one of these things that's hidden back here? The baptistry. Because that's not living water. Ralph, who cleans it, might argue with you. At times, it has been very much alive. Okay? But there are people who argue that it has to be a natural body of water with an inlet and an outlet. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. People have argued this. It's a silly argument. It's ridiculous. But it's been argued. Just because something's been argued doesn't mean it's valid. People can argue about all kinds of things. And so then, what do we do? When we come to one of those impasses, what do we do? Hyper-autonomy. If you won't come to agree with me on whether or not you can be baptized in there or we have to go down to the river, then I'm starting a new church. Who are you now? And show me that in the book of Acts. And boy, there are no fingers pointing out at people of other Christian groups this morning. None. I will not do it. Okay, I'm not talking about the Baptists, the Methodists, the Lutherans. I'm not talking about any of them this morning. We have a problem with this. When you go into a town, and, and we don't have this right here in early, but we have it in our greater area. When you go into a town and there are so many different churches, sometimes that's because maybe there needed to be a congregation that meets in a particular neighborhood. Maybe there needed to be one that met. And that's not always bad. It's not, sometimes it's awesome. It's church plants. It's positive. It's growth. It's outreach. So don't, you, know, you can't paint with too broad a brush. There are wonderful reasons there are a lot of churches. Every time they add another neighborhood, 
neighborhood city called a neighborhood to the Metroplex, my first thought is I hope there is a church ready because that's another place where God's Word needs to go and they need to think that through as they build these new neighborhoods. There's one uh, this side of Fort Worth, between Fort Worth and Weatherford, where, you know, there used to be just cows. 50,000 new homes going in. 50,000 new homes going in. 50,000 families, many of whom, odds are 75% of whom, do not yet know Jesus. So they ought to be thinking about that, right? That's a good thing. That's the good example. But so often it's arguments over things. And that's not how it happened here. How did it happen here? They said, we've got a problem. Why don't we get together? Oh, well, there's a novel idea. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, so they did talk about it, right? They argued back and forth. We don't have all their discussion. And we shouldn't read this as if what we read here is the sum total of everything. We don't have everything they said. We had their conclusion. But uh, they, they debated the issue, and then Peter gets up. Peter, we think about Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles because he was, but there was another apostle called to the Gentiles before Paul. And we don't give him credit for fulfilling that mission like we should. And that's Peter. Peter gets up. And this is what he says in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter's preached this sermon to these very people before. So he gives them the cliff's notes. Now therefore, why... Are you putting God, this is pretty pointed, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, there are a couple of things here. There are several things we need to catch. There are two that I think are absolutely Genius, Not surprising, because we know, and it's in the context, that Peter spoke this by the Holy Spirit. So the genius makes a whole lot of sense, right? I know where he would give the credit. There are several things. I'm going to point out those two here in just a second. First, uh, look at this phrase. This is one of the two, actually. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Do you notice his order in the way he structures this sentence? I'm going to go fifth grade English class with Mrs. Stroud on you for a second. And if I could diagram this in real time, I would love to have done so. But I did not want to do that slide. Uh, Plus, I don't know, how many people here even remember how to diagram a sentence with a chart? Well, bless your hearts, there are more here than I expect. Good for you. Awesome. The rest of you, you're missing out. It's actually kind of fun. And you have to do it sometimes in the Bible. So here's what he does. He says, we believe that we will be saved through faith in the, uh, or excuse me, through the grace in of the Lord Jesus. Okay, that's what the first thing he says. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Not by our law keeping, not by our circumcision, not by our lists, and not because we were first. That's important. It's so important that he is not trying to play a seniority game and that he actually wants to squash the seniority game, a problem that still exists in most churches today. Well, I've been here longer. I ought to have more say. Mm, Jesus has been here longer. He done trumped you. Okay? None of us have seniority in the church. We may have come to Christ earlier, but we don't have seniority. It doesn't count here. This is what he does. 
Look at how he words it. We will be saved through grace just as they will. Do you catch that? Sentence diagrammers catch that. He's not saying they are going to be saved like us. He says we are going to be saved like them. Think about the genius of that sentence structure. He tells people who think they are first-class citizens in the kingdom of God, talking about second-class citizens, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's amazing. What Peter does here is awesome. And I think we most of the time, I most of the time just skip right over that. That is genius. Don't know how it fell on their hearts, but that is genius. He reminds us of what Jesus said. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. They're going to be saved and we will be saved like them through grace. It's kind of beautiful about it, isn't it? So he says to them, he, he, Peter didn't get the memo that as a church of Christ preacher, he was only supposed to have three points, so he has more. So I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, first, he says, referring back to Acts chapter 10, which they knew about because he had reported it to them uh, just in the next chapter. But he says, you know that God called me to preach to the Gentiles. You know that. You know that this isn't just, oh, they happen to be coming in and they're second class and they've got to conform to us. You know that from the beginning God said that they are worthy of the Gospel. And He called me to do just that without a bunch of extra hoops to jump through. That's part of His point when He brings that up. And then He says this, and this is one of the other things I think is genius. He says God knows their hearts. He knows their faith. He knows whom they trust, Jesus. He knows that they are living in obedience to Jesus. God knows their hearts. He knows that they're Christians. He knows that their their relationship with God is valid by grace through faith. And he says, and you need to know that too and stop trying to be the judge. God, who will actually be their judge, He knows who they are. You stop worrying about it and stop trying to play that game. That was your old Pharisee game. It's over. How many times did He tell you? It's over. The gavel down. God knows their hearts. He showed us, he says, that they are his because he gave them the Holy Spirit. He says, just as as God gave the Spirit to us, he gave the Spirit to them. How did God always confirm the Word? Through the Holy Spirit. How do we know now if someone is a Christian? Because they have a Church of Christ bulletin in their Bible on Sunday when they go to lunch, right? Isn't that it? Lubies used to give you a discount. Furs used to give you a discount if you brought a Bible. Or not a Bible. If you brought a bulletin. I don't know who gives you a discount if you bring a Bible. But they, if you brought a church bulletin, some restaurants used to give you 10% off, 5% off, something like that. Free tea. One of them gave you free tea. That's big in Texas, right? Free tea. Who's doing that now? Now they want you to pay out through the nose for tea. He gave you the Spirit. That's how you know somebody's a Christian. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit to which we like those at the meeting in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 say yes they're fruit that's right and we will know them by and then each of us has our own personal list I'm not going to make it for you I don't want to encourage any of that we start making a list in our head yes and if they 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 you know we believe there are no creeds but Christ the truth is we have creeds we just don't write ours down but we check them off in our heads, and that's no different. We make fun of them for wanting to demand circumcision, but then we demand this, 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 and this, an agreement. And it's not different. He said, you look at the fact that God has granted them the Holy Spirit. Then, he makes the point, just 
like us. Same level, not second class. I've made that point, but it needs to be made again and again and again and again and again. Not second class. If you are a newer member of this congregation, you are not a second class member to somebody who's been here forever. If you've been here forever and that's news to you, good. Now you know. (laughs) Okay? We don't do that here. We will not uh, honor that here. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ by faith. Period. 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 I feel like I need to say it again. Okay? Because they've been cleansed, he says, by faith. By faith. I could, I could preach on that one all afternoon, but there's kids upstairs. I better not. Number six. Who are you to make it harder for them? This statement. Who are you to put on them, things on them that you know you and I have not even done well. Isn't that something? I love that. That's a moment of humility on Peter's part. Because Peter is a Jew. He could have pulled all that rank that they were trying to pull, and he pulls none of it. Instead, he says, who are we even? We don't have the right to add things on them. You know, we talk a lot in Churches of Christ about uh, that no one is to add or take away from the Word of God. And we talk about that generally when we're saying somebody wants to do this, and we're not sure whether or not you know, God doesn't talk about it, the Word doesn't talk about it, and so since the Word is silent about it, that's prohibited. Uh, that's actually not always true, but that's kind of our traditional take. It's always prohibited. And so we say, you can't do that. Do you know the irony of that? Do you know the irony of this? One is, you got that principle from silence too. Because he didn't say that's how you make the decision. We say that's how you make a decision. The second irony is this. When you add a prohibition that Jesus did not add, that is no different than adding the action that He did not add. And you are as guilty of the sin of adding to the Word of God as the people that you got your finger pointed at. Have you ever thought about that? Then we're just as guilty. They wanted to add bring along an old command, say, no, you still got to do it this way. Jesus hadn't said it. The apostles hadn't taught it. The Spirit had not revealed it. But they said, well, we don't see an outright cancellation. So we believe that they have to do this. This is on them. And they added a law where God had not. They added to the silence a, a, a requirement. We still do the same thing early and often. We're as wrong as they were when we do it. We need to be careful about that, okay? We need to be very, very careful about that because it will do to us what it did to them. It brought disunity. It brought a mistreatment of their brothers and sisters in Christ. It created a perceived second class of Christians that were, and I quote, brothers in error. That's the phrase we often like to use, brothers in error, who are, yeah, they're my brother, but... There's no brother, but. There's just brother. There's just sister. We don't have the right to do that. We just don't. And, Paul, and Peter says to them, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Nobody ever wants to answer that question when people ask it, do they? Well, I thought I would. No, nobody. We, even the Pharisees knew better than to speak up then, okay? They didn't say a word to, uh, in response to what he said to that. He's calling them to this simple thing. Guys, we're saved by grace. It's what he says in verse 11. We're saved by grace. We're not, we're not, you don't live in that fear and that constant angst of the God who is about to zap you. You live by grace through faith 
in Jesus Christ. And that's it. Well, they all fell silent. That's what it says in verse 12. The assemb- all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul now get up after Peter because they've got something to say too. As they related what signs and wonders God had done, done through them among the Gentiles. So they get up and they say, listen, I've got I to gotta talk to you about what we're seeing out there because Peter's not just making this up and he's not the only one who's seeing this fruit. It's incredible. But we also have another witness to what we're telling you right here. The witness of the Holy Spirit who through signs and wonders in our ministry is showing that this is so. That was the ministry of the Holy Spirit among them to confirm the Word through signs and wonders. John 20, 30, 31 talks about this. That all of that was done so that we would come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says, and we're seeing it. And sometimes the people who need to come to faith are the people who are already in the body. They needed to believe that the Gentiles were full, card-carrying brothers and sisters in Christ. And they say the Spirit has been showing us that fact all throughout our ministry. And let me tell you, it is amazing. So they give that proof. And why do they get up and do that? I think it's partly because of this. The men they're talking to, the men they're debating with, they know very well that the standard of truth according to the law of Moses, you can use people's things with them, not against, but with them and for them. They know that the standard of truth and law of Moses from Deuteronomy 19 and verse 5 is this. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The sentence right before that is dealing with crime. And it says that you can't prosecute a crime on a single witness. Can you imagine how much emptier our prisons would be if we used a biblical standard of evidence? People go to the death chamber in our country on unbiblical levels of evidence. And sometimes, sometimes we find out, sometimes after it's too late, that the evidence was never there. That's a little aside, but it's an important biblical aside. The Bible, not politics or tradition, should shape what we believe about these God's words should speak. On the testimony of two to three witnesses, so what does he have? Peter got up and stood up and said, Barnabas gets up and bears witness. Paul gets up and bears witness. They bear witness to the fact the Holy Spirit Himself has borne witness and given testimony that the Gentiles are full-fledged Christians. That's important for us because most of us are. Most of us are. So when you hear this, don't think this is some academic thing that you don't need to care about. This is the Apostle Paul... Barnabas and the Apostle Peter and the Holy Spirit Himself bearing witness to God loves you as much as He loved Abraham. God loves you as much as He loved Moses. As much as He loved Ruth. As much as He loves Esther. He loves you. You are not second class to your heroes in the faith. Isn't that incredible? He loves you that much. He welcomes you in the same way. Hebrews 11 says that because He wanted to be more special... He is waiting to resurrect them together with you so that it would make a bigger impact at the resurrection. That's the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Go check it out sometime. Pretty cool. God wanted it to be that way. This is God's will. After they finish speaking, James replies, Brothers, listen to me. He's, he's a prominent figure in the Jerusalem church. Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with his words, or with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as, excuse me, as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. This is, 
This is why, by the way, we sing that song about uh, rebuilding the temple of praise. That's what the writer says. He kind of had this in mind when he wrote that line. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Look at that. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. This is the Scriptures. And James says, you know what they're saying is right, guys. I know we're struggling, but it's right here. Isn't that where we often struggle? We will read something in the Scriptures plain and clear and we'll finally come to understand it the way that God wants it to be and we'll still say, yeah, but mm, that's just not the way I thought it was. And we'll go another 30 years ignoring what God said. Is that right? What if at the end of this meeting they'd said, well, I think that's right. I think that's right, Paul. I think that's right, Peter. I think that's right, James. But that's just hard for some of us and we don't want to cause too much trouble. So we were thinking maybe around 2050 we could get around to that. Well, okay. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, now. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. I think we lost a word. Who? Something. <laughs> let, me, let me go back to my Bible. I left off at verse 13. Let's pick up in 14. <clears throat> no, I can't read that. 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should, there we are, but should uh, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So his idea is let's write a letter. And let's, let's encourage them. Let's, let's keep this simple. We're not going to make this complicated because we don't have a right to complicate things beyond what God has said. Wow. What if we did that? We're going to recognize all our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're not going to overcomplicate things. We're not going to add to what God has said. We're not going to take away from what He said. We're not going to pretend we're judges where we're not judges. We're going to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ whether they have a kitchen in their building or not, whether they have Sunday school or not, whether they have a baptistry or will only baptize in creeks or not. We could add a whole lot of stuff to that list. And what if we just said, we love Jesus and His people so much, we're going to keep it as simple as possible to come into the kingdom of God. What if, what if we said that? Wouldn't that be absolutely... And I don't need those for that. Wow. Uh, the simplicity of this, the grace-centeredness of this, the Christ-centeredness of what they did is awesome. And it's not what Christians always do. It's not what we always do. This is what he says. No idolatry. Remind them again, no idolatry. Well, that's an easy one to agree on, right? When you follow Jesus, this should be a given. And nobody else, right? We're not going to have idols. We're not going to worship any other gods. All that is gone. All the pagan stuff is over. No idolatry. For the Gentiles, that's, that's something they needed to repeat. Okay? Because they're coming out of that background and they don't need to fall into their old ways either. So no idolatry. Leave it at the door. Be faithful to God sexually. Uh, this is one of the problems that they were having. They were having trouble with uh, the pagan idolatry bringing in sexual promiscuity and having an influence on that. Roman culture was very promiscuous. Now my battery's going. Okay. No idolatry. Be faithful to God sexually in terms of what He has, what he has said and the way things ought to be according to God's own Word within a God-blessed marriage. Period. Just be faithful to God. And then he goes on and says, and by the way, a lot of that meat sacrifice to idol stuff, just don't do it. 
nothing strangled, not, don't eat the blood. Uh, even though he's talking about some things that were connected to pagan idolatry, when Tanya and I go to England, no blood pudding. Okay, I'm going to call that a religious belief. It's not, I think it's disgusting and I think it's gross and I want to go nowhere near it. But I'm going to quote the verse. Okay, I got grounds. Okay, that's simple. Can you believe that's all they had to say to them? That simple? Isn't your list longer than that? If you were going to write that letter, would it be longer? I mentioned creeds earlier. The Nicene Creed is longer, even though I believe pretty much everything in that. I can agree with that. It's longer. Creeds eventually grew. Westminster Confession is practically an encyclopedia. Why I am a member of the Church of Christ is that thick. A lot longer than this letter addresses things it doesn't address, neither does Scripture. We put things on people beyond. They made a determination not to. And they did that even together. Even though there was disagreement, even though there was debate, together they worked it out. We need to be a people, even if we can't get everybody else to work with us, so determined to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that we will work with people we disagree with, encouraging them to come along where we believe the Scriptures speak, encouraging them to deal with things similar to this. But we need to do this with grace. Peter said so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to do so with grace. Paul said so by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has already spoken on all of this, and He tells us to keep it simple and to be one. Because it all comes back down to Jesus. We sang the song earlier. Jesus, only Jesus, whose prayer was this. John 17, I'm going to skip to it. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We will either be a hindrance to that prayer being answered, or will be an answer to that prayer being answered. Today we get to choose. If today is the day that you go, you know what? Grace is something I can buy into. Jesus is the one I want to follow. You know, we enter into that relationship because we put our faith in Jesus who gives us that grace. The same Peter stood up on Pentecost and told them that if they would be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that then testifies this this is a child of God. This is one of mine. If that's something you still need to make right with God this morning, we invite you to do that this morning as we stand and as we sing.